Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, Love Never Fails. All right, well, we have come to one of the most famous chapters in the entire Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And the words in this chapter are so special, um, you hear them a lot in weddings. For example, um, how many of you guys have been to weddings before in the past and you've heard love is patient, love is kind? You've heard this quoted at a wedding. Let me see your hand if you've done that before, right? Almost all of us. And so whether it's the weddings of believers or whether it's the weddings of unbelievers, and you, you might think, well, why would unbelievers be so drawn to this chapter in the Bible? Well, my opinion is this. People who don't know God are empty inside. And so somehow, some way, they know that love may be the answer. And so they're attracted to anything that talks about love, anything that would fill the void inside their hearts. There's an old song from the 1960s that um, was sung by Dionne Warwick called What the World Needs Now is Love. When I was a kid growing up in the, I was born in the 60s, but as I was growing up in the 70s, they would play that song over and over on the radio. You still hear it from time to time on the oldie station. And so why in the world would that song be so popular after 50 some odd years? Again, I believe it's because people are empty inside and somehow, some way, they know that love may be the answer. And so they're attracted to anything that talks about love, anything that they think may fill the void inside. And so the good news this morning is that love is the answer. But it's got to be the right kind of love. <laughs> and so what is love? Well, our culture thinks that love is a feeling. And so a young man looks at a young lady who's attractive and his eyes pop out of his head, right? His heart melts. And he asks her out on a date. And they go on just two or three dates. And after just two or three dates, he's already saying stuff like, oh, baby, I love you so much. <laughs> Do you really? Or have you mistaken sentimental feelings for love? Do you really love her? Or have, have you probably... Uh, mistaken physical chemistry for true love. I remember years ago during a pre-marriage counseling session, my wife and I um, in another church used to do a ton of pre-marriage counseling sessions. And I remember I asked the guy, the question I asked all the guys, I said to him simply, why do you want to marry her? And this guy got an incredulous look on his face, right? He looks at me like, Look at her. That's what he said. And I quote, look at her. In other words, she's gorgeous. That's why I'm going to marry this woman. And I'm thinking, wrong answer. It's great that God's blessed you with a beautiful woman, but that's the wrong answer. Because what's going to happen after you get married and she starts getting on your nerves? What's going to happen after you get married and you get into an argument and she says, I want you to sleep on the couch? What's going to happen when she gets older and puts on a few pounds? Starts having a little bit of wrinkles. Amen. I heard that amen down there. <laughs> no, seriously, what's going to happen? 
Here's what happens, sadly, in a million cases across America. That guy, that girl, they end up in a counselor's room. And you know what the, guy, you know what the guy's saying? He's saying, quote, I've fallen out of love with her. Well, newsflash, you were never in love with her to begin with. Come on, just be real. There was physical chemistry, there was sentimental feelings, but that's not the kind of love that the Apostle Paul gives us in chapter 13. And so we have to understand the definition of the Greek word in the original manuscripts for love, it's agape. And so what is it? What's the definition? If you're taking notes, it's a selfless act of, what's the word? Giving. It's a commitment. True love is not a selfish act of taking. I love you because of what you can do for me. That's the world's love. No, true love is a selfless act of giving. I want you because of what I can do for you, how I can bless you, how I can help you, how I can encourage you. That's true love. When I think about parents, at least most parents, this is the kind of love that parents have for their kids, right? Why do, ki why do parents have kids? Is it so what the kids can do for them? No, come on, parents, you know this, right? The reason you had kids is so you can be a blessing to that kid, so you can help that kid, so that you can pray for that kid, that that kid will grow up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, so that you can sacrifice and stay up late at night, and, and sacrifice financially, and sacrifice physically, and sacrificing your finances. Why? Because you want to see that kid grow in the wisdom and the nurture of the Lord. You want to give. You want to be a blessing. You want to encourage. You want to see that kid grow up and develop to be a lifelong follower, hopefully, of Jesus Christ. And so it's all about giving. Well, that's true love. And the best um, example of true love is our heavenly father, the greatest parent who ever lived, right? God did not create us for what he can get out of us. God created us to bless us and to love us and encourage us and to help us. That's why he absolutely loves us. So agape love is not just seen in the most famous, arguably the most famous chapter in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 13. It's also seen in the most famous verse in the Bible. And you know where I'm going with this. John 3, 16. For God so loved, there's that word, agapao, agape. He so loved the world that he, what's the word? Gave. gave. There it is right there. Now, there are examples in the Bible uh, where agape is used in a negative way. Uh, men loved darkness more than light. That's why they didn't accept Christ. Okay, they loved agape. We're not going to talk about the negative part of it. We're going to talk about the positive part about it. God's love. God so loved agape, the world, that he gave his one and only son that, what's the word? Whoever. Ladies and gentlemen, don't buy into the lie that God predestined some people to be saved and that, here's the lie, God predestined some people to be damned. That's being taught in churches today and a lot of young people are buying into double predestination that God actually predestined people to be damned? Are you kidding me? That's not our God. Our God loves everybody. The Bible says whoever. 
You know, it might be sexy, it might be cool to be a hyper-Calvinist and to believe that God predestined some people to hell, but that's not our God. The Bible says in 2 Peter 3.9, he is not willing that anybody should perish. And so he gave his one and only son that whoever, that's anybody, anybody who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Now I believe in election, but I also believe in man's choice. We all have a choice in the matter. And so man, be careful about man-made doctrines that go beyond the word of God because your heart will get cold towards people that need the Lord. Everybody needs the Lord. And so God so loved Agapao, the world, that he, here it is, gave. It's not a selfish act of taking. It's a selfless act of giving. It's not a feeling. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to suffer and die. Do you think the father felt like doing that? How many of you moms and dads want to see your kids suffer? How many of you mom and dads want to see your son or daughter die prematurely? Right? We don't want to see that. So the father, is, love is, my point is love is not a feeling. God the father did not feel like watching his son get beat up. The son did not feel like getting laughed at and cursed, and spit upon, and beaten, whipped, nails driven into his hands and feet and crown of thorns on his, he didn't feel like that. No, because love is not a feeling, it's a selfless act of giving. And so if you're thankful for the sacrifice that Jesus made on your behalf, let him know right now with a clap offering how much you love him and thankful you are to him. He gave, he gave, he gave, he gave, and he keeps giving. He keeps on giving. Now, before we read verse one, you gotta understand, we've been going our way, uh, working our way verse by verse through 1 Corinthians, okay? So we've gone through chapter 12 last week. That was all about spiritual gifts. This week, we're in chapter 13. It's about agape love. Next week, we're going to 14. That's about more spiritual gifts. And so 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14 is a lot like an Oreo cookie. How many of you guys like cookies? How many of you guys like to open it up and lick the inside? Right? Why? Because what's in the middle is the best. That white cream filling. And so chapter 12 is kind of like the cookie part on the outside. Chapter 14, the spiritual gifts, kind of like the cookie part on the outside. But the really good stuff, the white cream filling, that's chapter 13. It's the more excellent way. It's better than spiritual gifts. It is true love. Look at verse 1. He says, though I speak with the tongues, this languages, of men and of Angels, by the way, angels have a language too. So we'll talk about that next week because chapter 14 talks a lot about the gift of tongues. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Verse two, and though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, Though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, 
I'm nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. And so the Holy Spirit, in verses one through three, through Paul, just gave us a tremendous truth. The truth that he gave us, if you were paying attention as we were reading, is that love is more important than spiritual gifts. Okay? True love, agape love, is more important than the gift of tongues or prophecy or knowledge or faith or even giving. And so without love, all the spiritual gifts, he says, are nothing. And so if you're engaging in a spiritual gift, like let's say speaking in tongues, but you're doing it because you want attention, you want people to see how spiritual you are, so you're just kind of speaking up in the air and there's no interpreter, you're doing it for selfish reasons, God knows your heart, he says you're like a, how did he say it um, in the New King James Version? He says you're like a, a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. I mean, you might as well just go bam, bam, bam. You're annoying. Stop, please. If you're engaging in the spiritual gift of prophecy or, or all the other gifts, but you don't have love in your heart, Paul says you're nothing. So love is where it's at. Spiritual gifts are important, but they have to be mixed with love. Okay, so verse four, he says, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It thinks no evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And then I want you guys to Go ahead and say out loud the first three words on the count of three. One, two, three, go. Love never fails. And so in these verses, Paul answers the question, what is love? And what he has just shown us is that love is not a noun. Love's a verb. Okay, so here's what's um, on tap for today. What we're gonna do is we're gonna look at all the different descriptions of love. Okay, we only have a certain amount of time. So there's, I'm gonna condense it down to 10 things love is. And because it's 10 and not three or whatever, I'm gonna just kinda hit it, teach quickly and move. Hit it, teach quickly and move. We're gonna shift gears, shift gears. So you're gonna have to think fast. Okay, you guys ready for this? Okay, so the first point, Paul's first point, if you're taking notes, is that love is patient. He says in verse four there that love suffers long. Love is patient. Let's just get real here for a minute. We all live in a fallen world, do we not? Filled with fallen people. People that have all these annoying habits. Idiosyncrasies, right? Um, they rub us the wrong way. They have these hangups. And if anybody right here is Right now, if you're thinking, yeah, people are so annoying. <laughs> you need to know that you also have annoying habits and hangups and idiosyncrasies and you rub people the wrong way. And so if we're all gonna be able to live together and put up with each other, we all have to learn to be patient with one another. And I've gotta spend a little bit of time, extra time here, because this is gonna lay a foundation to help you understand this, especially if you're new to the Bible. 
okay? So love is patient. Does that mean that if I make a decision, right, I'm gonna try really hard to be more patient. Does that decision mean that I'm gonna be more patient, right? If a parent says, I'm gonna try really hard to be more patient with my kid, how long is that gonna last? Well, as soon as they have a temper tantrum and then you take them to put them in timeout and they hit you, and then the next thing you know, they're throwing a toy across the room, guess what? How's your decision to try harder working now? The key is not trying harder. If we're gonna succeed at being more patient, we've gotta understand that patience is a fruit of the Spirit. Okay, so check out Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the who? Is love. That's agape love, by the way, in the Greek. Joy, peace, here's our word, patience. Next word, kindness. He includes also goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. It doesn't say the fruit of Mike is love, joy, peace, patience. It doesn't say the fruit of Fred or Betsy is love, joy, peace, patience. And so the point here is that patience does not originate with us. Patience originates with God. And so Jesus said this in John 15. He gave us the key back in the Gospels of how to have a victorious Christian life. Here it is. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Anyone who abides in me and I in him will bear much fruit. You wanna know the key to living the Christian life victoriously? It's not trying harder. I always get this as I'm talking to people who are having problems and difficulties and they're, they say so, so often to me, Pastor Mike, I'm trying harder. I'm really trying. Well, that's not the key. Now, I understand that sanctification um, 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 requires our participation. Let me say that again. Sanctification, becoming more like Christ, requires our participation. We don't believe in that old heresy of quietism. You know, we just kind of sit back and let God do everything. No, God wants to use us. So there is um, our participation, but that's just a small part. It's not about trying harder. It's about abiding with Jesus, right? Yes, we should thank God for that because he's already provided all we need for the victorious Christian life. He says, I'm the vine. You're not the vine. Get over it. You're just a branch, okay? Jesus is the vine. You and I are just branches. If we hang out with him, well, just like a branch, when it hangs out with the tree trunk, what does it do? It receives life, nutrients from the tree trunk, and then all of a sudden, boop, boop, boop. Patience, love, kindness. Is that branch trying hard to produce that stuff? Is it like, <laughs> patience, woo, yeah, love, no. It's just hanging out with the vine. Ladies and gentlemen, if you wanna have a victorious Christian life, hang out with Jesus. Every single day, hang out with him. You say, I don't do daily devotions, that's legalism. What? That's not legalism, it's life, it's our very life. Hang out with Jesus. 
And as you're hanging out with Jesus, he'll give you spiritual life and he'll give you spiritual nourishment. And the next thing you know, somebody pushes your buttons, somebody annoys you, your wife does something to tick you off, your husband does something that makes you say, you're on the couch tonight, whatever it might be. And all of a sudden, here's the thing. Somebody pushes your buttons, somebody annoys you, and you're kind to them. And you're thinking, where did that come from? (laughs) Not you. The Lord in here, the vine, Jesus. Are you hanging out with him? And so he says, love is patience. And then Paul's next point, love is kind. See that in verse four, love is kind. Now, we have love life groups. You know I love life groups. You know it's our DNA. Um, Every once in a while we'll have a big event. That's great. But our DNA is life groups because we believe that if, uh, as I said last week, a healthy church, as it grows larger, it's got to grow smaller in order to experience New Testament community. And so what I love about our life groups is that every semester they go out and do acts of kindness in the community. How many of you guys understand that the church is not just about coming and hearing preaching, it's about serving our community? You guys understand that, right? And so that's what our life groups, 65, 70 plus life groups, 800 whatever people in life groups, they all choose to partner with a great organization in the community that's whatever, feeding the homeless or providing food uh, for kids who are hungry or, or whatever it might be. There's lots of different organizations and we partner with them through our life groups and we serve acts of kindness. But you may not be in a life group. Well, whether you're in a life group or not in a life group, hey, the whole church family, we can get together and get behind this Haiti shoebox thing, right? That's an act of kindness. Man, the first service responded so well, we hardly have any boxes left. And so right now, I normally don't, normally don't do this, but right now, look in your program, pull out the Haiti flyer. Go ahead and grab it and pull it out. And notice that there's lots of instructions on what you can do. And I would encourage parents that you bring your kids with you as you go shopping and you tell them what you're doing. Hey, we're gonna provide Christmas for a little boy or girl in Haiti that's not gonna get any Christmas presents unless we step up and do something. Teach your kids how to give. And some of you guys can go ahead and grab boxes after the service, and I'm sure we'll run out after this service, but most of you can just turn the flyer over and get your own box and follow the instructions. And wow, wouldn't it be awesome if our church set a new record this year with the number of Christmas shoe boxes that we provide through um, New Hope, um, um, New Hope um, Missions International and also GVCM? Wouldn't it be great if we set a record and we gave more Haitian little kids a beautiful Christmas than ever before? Wouldn't that be awesome if we did that? We all got to work together to do that, though. I've been to Haiti. It's the worst poverty in the Western Hemisphere. I've seen elderly men literally kneeling down on dirt roads and filling up water bottles in street puddles and drinking it. That's poverty like we don't know in America. And little kids are growing up, and they don't have the basic needs of life. Let's be a church that does acts of kindness That's why we get involved with four kids. That's why we encourage some of you who are called to do this to be foster parents. 
It's an act of kindness. There's 300 kids on the Treasure Coast that need homes. They need foster parents to step up. We're going to have that training. It's in your program to do that act of kindness. That's why next week we're going to talk about hooking up with Pastor Teddy, uh, Calvary Compassion Church, and we're going to provide hundreds of Thanksgiving dinners to people in Fort Pierce who don't have the money to have a Thanksgiving dinner. Well, we're going to step up and we're going to say we're going to address that. And not only are we going to address your, your, your Thanksgiving dinner, we're also going to share the love of Jesus with you as we do. Acts of kindness. And the more we do that, man, the more God will say, I'm going to bless this church because they're not inwardly focused, they're outwardly focused. Does that make sense to you guys? We've got to move on. Look at verse 4. He says, love does not envy. Okay, so Paul's next point is love is not envious. So we got to quick keep switching gears and changing subjects here, okay? So let's talk about envy. What is envy? Envy is a feeling of resentment that is often aroused when we see another person's possessions or achievements or notoriety. And then we become jealous of their possessions, achievements, and notoriety. We look over at them and we think, man, must be nice to live there in that neighborhood. Must be nice to drive that car. Wow, must be nice to be able to afford those clothes. Wow, why does he get the pretty girlfriend? I don't even have a girlfriend. Why did she get the promotion? I've been here longer than her. And so feelings of resentment, feelings of jealousy, feelings of envy. Now, don't make the mistake, and when you have those thoughts, and we all do, don't make the mistake of downplaying it, saying it's no big deal. It's a big deal. Envy is a serious sin. No one sees it. It's going on in here and here. It's still a serious sin. It's so serious. Did you know that envy caused the first murder in the history of mankind? Cain killed his little brother Abel because of envy. Envy is a serious sin. Did you know that Joseph's brothers mistreated him, threw him, into a, 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 threw him into a pit, later on sold him into slavery? Why? The Bible says because of envy. They were envious of him. It's a serious sin. The leaders of Israel, do you know why they turned Jesus over to be crucified to Pilate? Matthew says envy. And so don't downplay it. Don't minimize it when envy, jealousy starts coming up in your heart and and I, I thought this week as I'm writing this message, Lord, what can I do to help the congregation turn envy into love? People who are struggling with this. And the thought I had immediately was prayer. Okay, so if you struggle with, with thoughts of envy towards somebody else's success, here's what you do. You pray for that person. In other words, something like this. Lord, man, Lord, I see you've been blessing so-and-so. Would you bless them even more? Lord, would you bless their marriage? Would you bless their finances? Would you bless their kids? Would you bless every part of their lives? And Lord, would you help me to be content with who you made me to be and what you've given to me? And then what's gonna happen is that one prayer will turn into 10, 50, 100, 500, and as you're praying, God will show up and he'll do an inside job 
he'll change your heart. And envy will turn to agape love. It's really about prayer. It's really about the Holy Spirit. It's really about agape love. Paul's next point, verse four, love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. So love is humble. That's how we'll summarize that. Love is humble. Have you ever been in a conversation with somebody who keeps turning the conversation back to themselves? Oh, and they don't even see it. And so you're talking to them, right, and they keep turning back to their achievements, what they've done. You know, I did this, and I did that, and I was over here, and I was over there. In other words, I'm so great. What are they doing? They're parading themselves. Everybody look at me. Everybody admire me, right? Now, the fruit of the problem is they turn the conversation always to themselves. That's just a fruit. You can't deal with the fruit. You can't say, hey, buddy, stop talking about yourself. (laughs) They don't see it. What's the root? The root is insecurity. They're, They're so insecure that they need you to admire them. They need you to stroke their ego. And so the cure for insecurity, of course, is a personal, vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ. We know that, right? He's the only one that can touch us that deeply within and make us secure. And so that's where you start with people. You talk to them about Jesus. You ask them if they have a relationship with Jesus. You ask them, do you have a relationship with Jesus where he's filling you every single day and making, turning your insecurities into security with him? Are you leaning on his promises? And so prideful people want you to admire them, but humble people are content to just serve people behind the scenes. And so the question here, before we move on is, and just answer this in your heart, are you prideful or are you humble? And right now, if you're thinking, I'm humble. Well, the fact that you just boasted about your humility shows me that you have a problem with pride. Gotcha. All right, we'll move on here. (laughs) We all have a long way to go on that one. All right, verse five, check it out. Love does not behave rudely. Paul's next point, love is not rude. We're talking about what is agape love? What is true love? Is it a feeling? No. Is it Great chemistry, physical chemistry between a man and a woman? No, no, it's actually not rude. It's just so practical, isn't it? Love is not rude. And so the next question, as you and I look in the mirror of God's word, okay, it's a mirror. Right now, God's word is saying, are you rude or are you respectful to people? And the mirror doesn't lie. So don't lie to yourself. Just just answer the question in your heart honestly. Are you rude? In the last two weeks, were you rude to somebody? Or are you consistently respectful to everybody in your life? Now, what's amazing to me is that the place where people are the most rude is not work, it's not um, school, it's not I-95, that we all know how rude people can be. (laughs) But that's not where people are the most rude. The the place where people are the most rude is home. 
This is sad. It breaks my heart. And you know the reason? Because familiarity breeds contempt. Isn't it sad when a mom is talking to her girlfriend on the phone and she's being so respectful? Okay, all right, see you next week. I'll talk to you next week. Ciao. And then all of a sudden she just screams at her kids because they haven't cleaned up yet. You brat, come on. What's wrong with you? Right? That's sad. Who's more important, the girlfriend or the kids? Your kids are more important. Stop being rude. Stop yelling at your kids. It's wrong, people. We're the church of the living God. We should be the most respectful people on the planet, and respect starts at home. Respect your wife. Respect your husband. Respect your kids. Treat them with dignity. Treat them with honor, especially your kids. They're fragile. They need your encouragement. They need your love. They need you to build them up, not tear them down. Stop yelling at them. Stop cursing at them. Stop calling them brats. Make them obey you? Yes, absolutely. There's ways to make your kids obey without being rude to them. It's so sad when a husband's so nice to his neighbors. Coming home from work. Hey, yeah, woo. Have a great evening. And he walks in the house and he rips his wife upside one, up one side, down the other. You know, how come dinner's not ready yet? What have you been doing all day? I've been working, watching soap operas. Wow. Now, why is it important to make this change in our hearts? Okay, if you're with me here, say amen. You got to get this. You got to get this. It's important to make this change in your heart because you, if you don't make this change in your heart, you will find yourself living alone and you will find yourself dying alone. Anybody want to die alone? I've been to funerals like that. You go to the funeral home and there's like three people there. So sad. Why? Because the guy in the casket was rude to everybody in his life. Nobody's got anything nice to say about the guy in the casket. It's sad. It's wrong. We got to change our hearts. We have to be respectful. Love is not rude. Verse 5, love does not seek its own. Next, Paul's next point, love is not self-seeking. I know we're moving fast and switching gears, but I want to give you a Philippians 2.4 up on the screen. And I want to encourage you guys, just write down Philippians 2.4. Don't try to write the whole verse down. Later on, you can write the verse. But I want you to write the verse later on a three-by-five card. And I want you to put it on your mirror this week. Here's your homework for this week. Put it on the mirror, or maybe put it somewhere else where you're going to see it every day. Here it is. Let each of you look out, not only for his own interest, but also the interest of who? Others. Now, here's my promise to you. More importantly, here's God's promise to you. If you will live by that verse every day of your life, you'll, you'll be a joyful person. Why? Because the most miserable people in the entire world are self-centered people. The most miserable people, it's all about me, it's all about my problems, it's all about my issues. All they're doing is looking out for their own interests and they're miserable but if you change your priorities, and you've heard me talk about this before if you're taking notes, but if you change your priorities to this, J-O-Y, 
then what's gonna happen is that you'll see joy in your life. Can we see the J-O-Y acronym up on the screen, please? Got joy? Okay, here's what you do. Number one, Jesus. Does Jesus really have first place in your life? And then number two, you put others second. And then number three, are you last? That's what it means to don't just think about your own interests, think about the interests, the concerns, the problems, the issues of other people. By the way, that's why we go to church. We don't go to church primarily to be blessed. If you will, if this will be your motive starting next Sunday, for some of you who never heard this before, if your main motive for coming to church will be to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ because he's worthy, to come here and sing your songs of praise and prayer to the Lord, to exalt him and praise him, right? And then you'll come here set for the second reason, to be a blessing to other people, to serve people, to encourage them. And then your final reason is to be blessed or be encouraged. What you'll find is you'll have the peace and the joy of God in your heart. But if you put yourself first, and then others, and then Jesus, that spells Yaj, and that doesn't make sense. <laughs> and your life won't make sense either. And so, love is not self-seeking. Verse five, love is not provoked. That's Paul's next point. Love's not provoked. Okay, let me ask you a question. When are you the most provoked? I think the answer is probably, Pastor Mike, I'm the most provoked or the most tempted to be provoked when I'm offended by somebody, right? Okay, so if, you're, if you find yourself struggling with being provoked to act out in the flesh when somebody offends you or someone says something to offend you, then don't be reactionary. Be proactive. In other words, if someone says something you don't like, here's what most people do. They're like a tea kettle. Anybody got a tea kettle at home, right? You put the tea kettle, water in it, you put it on the stove, you turn the stove on high, and all of a sudden, the water gets hot, hot, starts to boil, and the next thing you know, what happens? All kind of noise, a big scene. And that's what happens with us. People say something to provoke us, to offend us, and we feel the water start to boil inside. We feel the anger starting to rise. Am I the only one, or, or does anybody else out there experience this, right? Some of you are looking at me like you're so spiritual. I never experienced this. Yes, you do. You feel anger if you're alive and breathing. And the, the, the water's boiling. Okay, before you blow your top and before you make a scene and before you ruin your marriage and before you ruin a relationship, don't be reactive. Be proactive. What can I do to be proactive? Here's conflict resolution 101 right here. Okay, I'm giving you really helpful things of what you can do this week. And if you don't have time to write all this down, all these messages are online. All the points 
pop up on the screen as you're watching the message. But number one, cool down and pray. So you feel the water boiling, you feel the anger rising, here's what you do. You say, hey, would you excuse me for a minute? (laughs) You know, they think you're going to the restroom. What are you doing? You're actually walking away from causing a scene. And you go, and you don't just go cool down, you go and pray. You go and hang out with the Lord. I love prayer walks. I love walking around lakes. I love talking to the Lord while I'm out in nature. Because I see his creation, I think, man, what a big God we have. Man, he created all this, you are awesome, Lord. And I just sense, for some reason, I just, I connect with the Lord outside. And it helps me cool down, it helps me get things in perspective as I'm praying for you and myself and my family. And so, now, okay, the water is back down to cool, it's cooled off. And so now, number two, you go back to the person when the time is right, and you actively listen to their position. You don't go in there and, man, you offended me, and just kind of just ripped their head off. No, you actively listen without interrupting. How do you actively listen? You make eye contact. You nod your head. You're actually listening. You're not thinking about your answer, right? You're not interrupting. Arrogant people interrupt. Arrogant people who think that what they have to say is more important than what the other person has to say, like to interrupt. That's not right. So we never interrupt. And not only that, um, we sometimes have to repeat back. So what you're saying is, you guys get the gist here. And then what you do, number three, is you never attack the person, you attack the problem. Don't attack people, they're not the enemy. You're just trying to deal with a problem here. And if you really have two humble people, which is rare, by the way, but if you really have two humble people, they'll identify that it's not an issue between people, it's a a problem. Let's address the problem. And then four, what you do is you just focus on your own faults. Lord, how did I mess up in this situation? What did I do wrong? I know it's not just that guy or that girl, it's me too. And so what happens is when you do that, you don't blow your top, you don't make a scene, you don't ruin, again, a friendship or a marriage. Verse five, love thinks no evil. So Paul's next point is love keeps no record of wrong. If you have the NASB or the NIV, that's the way it reads. Love keeps no record of wrong because in the New King James and the King James, love thinks, the word thinks means to keep record of. Evil can be translated as wrong. And so love literally keeps no record of wrongs. A disgruntled husband once said about his wife, and I quote, my wife should have a PhD in history. She can remember the past like nobody else that I know. And she can bring it up with such precise accuracy at just the right time. You know, back in 1992. Okay, so instead of keeping a record of wrongs, what should we do? We should do for that person what God has done for us. What has God done for us? He's forgiven. Ladies and gentlemen, he's forgave everything. Everything. The the slate is clean between you and God if you know Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ washes all sin away. All of it. 
Right now, as God, if you know Jesus Christ, when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees the robes of Christ's righteousness and he accepts you as a son or a daughter. It's a beautiful thing. And so let's do that for other people. And you see, right now, people are thinking, but they don't deserve it. Do you think you deserve the forgiveness that God has given to you? So do for them what God has already done for you. Forgive and forget. He says in verse six, love does not rejoice in iniquity, but it rejoices in the truth. And so Paul's point here, if you're taking note, it notes is love rejoices in the truth. We're winding down, we're almost done, but, but stay with us all the way to the end, okay? Love does not rejoice in iniquity, it rejoices in the truth. Okay, I'm gonna be very vulnerable right now as your pastor. I'm gonna kind of give you an inside look into my thought life. Here's where I struggle. When I am dealing with a difficult problem in life, what I do too often, and I've gotta get God's help on this, is I begin to allow my mind to consider assumptions instead of truth. In other words, when I'm dealing with a difficult situation, what happens is that my flesh will begin to say stuff like, well, I wonder what they're thinking about me. Yeah, I bet they're thinking that, yeah. I wonder what they're saying to people about me. I bet they're saying that, uh-huh, yeah. And it's sad. It's sad that sometimes I allow my mind to go off on some fantasy land that has no basis in reality at all. All it's doing is it's assuming things. And sometimes I'll play out whole conversations with people that have no basis in reality. And I'm just sitting there thinking, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> Now, if I struggle with that, I think probably a few of you do. Okay, so here's what we gotta do. Take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Why? Love rejoices in the truth. That's 2 Corinthians 10, by the way. Take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, 5, I think. And then what you do then is you only deal with the cold, hard facts. What are the cold, hard facts in the situation? You don't allow emotion to take over. You don't allow your mind to run away with a bunch of assumptions because what happens is that the enemy kind of lands on your shoulder and he's whispering lies in your ear. And some of us are listening to the lies. We gotta stop doing that. We gotta listen to God's voice. And God's voice says, love does not rejoice in iniquity. It rejoices in the truth. And then verse seven, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So I'm gonna combine all those together for your last point, and that is that love is committed. Some of you right now are thinking about throwing in the towel in your marriage. That's not love. Some of you right now are thinking about walking away from a friend. That's not love. Some of you right now are thinking about just giving up on whoever, that's not love. Love is committed. Listen, does God ever give up on us? 
Nope. And so it says, love bears all things. And so, Lord, could you help me to be as patient with this person as you are with me? Love believes all things. So, Lord, Philippians 1.6 says, he who began a good work in you will complete it. So I know that this person is a Christian. I know you began a good work in them. I'm going to trust you to complete it. I'm going to believe that about this person. Love hopes all things. Lord, help me to not focus on the negative. Help me to focus on the positive about this person's life. Help me not to lose hope. And then love endures all things. God, I'm not going to give up. You don't give up on me. Right? And so, with all that in mind, again, look at verse 8. He says, love, that kind of love, agape love, never fails. Ladies and gentlemen, feelings will fail. Great chemistry will fail. But love, a selfless act of giving, a commitment, it's based on God's truth with the help of God's Holy Spirit. That will not fail in your life. He says in verse 8, but whether there are prophecies, he's going back to spiritual gifts now. Hey, they're going to fail. Where there are tongues, another spiritual gift, they're going to cease. Where there is knowledge, it's going to vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is, look at verse 10, perfect has come. That is not the Bible there. There's Christians that say, well, that's the Bible and the completing of the canon of Scripture and the end of the apostolic age when the apostles died, the perfect has come. And so some of the gifts like tongues and prophecy, they passed off the scene. That's not true. The perfect is, the Bible's perfect in the original manuscripts, but that's not what this verse is talking about. It's talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ when we see him face to face. So all the gifts are for today until Jesus comes back. Let's rightly divide the word of truth here. He says in verse 10, when that which is perfect has come, that which is in part, the spiritual gifts, will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. And so now in this life, we see in a mirror dimly, but then, hey, look, look, face to face. It's the second coming of Jesus. The next life, the eternal state. He says in verse 12, now I know in part, but then I will know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these, church family, is what? Love. Love. And so as you and I, I did it earlier this week, you guys did it now, but as you looked into the mirror of God's word and you heard agape love described, probably if you're like me, there's some areas that we've come short. Okay, so what do we do? Do we try harder, yes or no? Thank you. I'm so glad you said no. That means you're listening. The key is not trying harder. The key is 
abiding in Christ. Hang out with Jesus. Here's why. Because you become like the people you hang out with. Hang out with Jesus. You'll become like Jesus. One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com and click on Knowing Christ.